Hello and welcome to a podcast for The Lancet. I'm Gavin Cleaver and it's the 11th of June 2019. I'm delighted to be joined today by Fiona Chelson and Mark Van Omeren and we're going to discuss their new work on uh, mental health in conflict settings. Fiona, Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. So let's get straight into it then. What have previous surveys and research findings told us about the prevalence of mental health disorders among the general population in conflict-affected areas? Yeah, so in uh, 2005, and largely in response to the Asian tsunami, WHO um, published their estimates, um, which were informed by experience in the field and and, um, research that was available, their prevalence estimates of mental disorders among people affected by humanitarian emergencies. Um, And these estimates were really widely circulated in policy documents. They were used to inform um, service uh, provision and also cited a lot by the media and funding proposals. But um, these estimates, as I mentioned, they weren't uh, empirically derived. They weren't sort of robust estimates, should we say. Uh, But since 2005, there's really been a large increase in psychiatric epidemiological research in conflict zones, and particularly in the last four to five years. Uh, And now we have a substantial number of peer-reviewed studies reporting the prevalence of mental disorders. We've identified 129 studies from 39 countries between 1980 and 2017. However, the problem with these studies has frequently been that there's been wide variability in the prevalence estimates and it's been difficult to interpret uh, the data given this variability and really no one's been able to successfully overcome that variability in a methodologically robust way Uh, and really that was the, the drive behind creating this current study. Which regions are particularly relevant when we're talking about conflict zones in 2019? It it seems like the DRC and Yemen are the obvious ones, but how many people are we talking about potentially affected by current conflicts? Currently, uh, the UN estimates that uh, 132 million people need humanitarian assistance. And we, in our our, uh, paper, we look at conflict-affected populations. So these also include populations who in the recent years, in the last 10 years, have been affected by conflict. So that number is manifold higher than 132 million. Uh, the countries where uh, currently, today, there is a large humanitarian crisis uh, are uh, Afghanistan, uh, as Iraq and Syria, and yes, Yemen, and increase Libya. And then in, uh, in Africa, there are large crises in South Sudan, and Nigeria, um, the food crisis uh, right now in the upcoming in Somalia. So uh, there is a many con- these are just the countries that are where the situation recently has has had, you know high, high mortality. But many there's many more countries with long, uh, ongoing, enduring conflict. So which mental health disorders uh, are relevant here? Which ones are we talking about? The it's very easy to think of crisis and think of the most obvious ones, which are the mood and anxiety disorders and post-traumatic stress disorder. So those are those are uh, very important disorders that that either are pre-existing before the emergency or or very often emergency induced. In addition, there's there's people uh, like in any place in the world, there's people who have uh, severe mental disorders, people with psychosis, uh, like schizophrenia or or from or from from bipolar disorder. So. Uh, that those are the disorders that uh, we looked at in the paper. However, we didn't look at all 
conditions that are potentially relevant. For example, we didn't look at uh, alcohol and drug use, and certainly alcohol use disorders can be very common in many, uh, many settings around the world. So moving on to the study on discussion then that's being published in the Lancet, uh, can you tell me a little bit about the, the kind of aims you were going and the methodology of the study as well? I guess the primary aim of this study was to empirically derive really robust um, prevalence estimates for priority mental disorders in conflict-affected uh, populations with the view that these would be adopted as official WHO um, estimates. Um, in this study, we conducted a very comprehensive systematic review of the literature to identify representative uh, population surveys, which report prevalence estimates of mental disorders in conflict-affected populations. Um, we had quite strict inclusion criteria. We wanted quality studies, um, which is not always uh, easy given the, the context. So the samples needed to be um, either residing in their country of origin or displaced um, or resettled in neighbouring countries. So, for example, we excluded populations or, or samples of studies which were resettled in Western countries, for example. Uh, and that was a deliberate choice so that we could create some or remove heterogeneity among these uh, study samples. Then we pooled these estimates using advanced disease modelling methods to derive our prevalence estimates uh, with uncertainty intervals. And uh, we did this, as Mark mentioned, for a range of mental disorders. We also then adjusted these prevalence estimates to account for comorbidity between mental disorders, um, which is significant, particularly between the more common mental disorders. And then we split these estimates proportionally by um, severity, so that we had uh, estimates for mild, moderate and severe forms of disorders. Um, and that's important to really um, guide and inform um, service delivery for those people most in need of treatment. We then finally derived standardised burden of disease estimates. We estimated wild Ds or years lived with disability. Um, and this is a really useful metric for benchmarking the burden of mental disorders in this context against um, other disease areas and other, uh, other countries and geographies. What, what then, in your opinion, are some of the key findings from the study? Um, well, the, the key, main key finding from the study was that one in five people are at any one time are affected by um, uh, mental disorder um, in these conflict-affected populations. Um, so that's obviously quite an elevated number compared to any of the previous estimates that we have uh, seen reported previously. Um, another key finding is that 9%, uh, nearly 10% of the population is affected by a severe form of their mental disorder. These are people who are really in a high need for access to, to treatment and effective treatment. Another interesting finding from this study was that it um, appears that women are uh, more likely to be affected than men. In terms of YLDs, um, so this is our burden of disease metric, uh, we noted that um, YLD rates for depression and post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD were more than five times higher than the existing global mean burden of disease estimates. So quite a significant elevation. Yeah, I'd like to 
add that also we found that depression, anxiety, they become more common as people get older. What I think is really striking to me in the study, and uh, should people give pause, is that uh, is that finding that Fiona mentioned that uh, one in ten, almost one in ten people has a moderate or severe mental disorder. That's a huge number of people to uh, to be concerned about and to uh, deliver services for. So I guess what's really concerning is trying to implement the infrastructure in a in a conflict zone to address some of these problems. So what are some of the first key steps to, to addressing uh, the mental health services in, in, in these conflict areas? Not, uh, when we work in, uh, in these zones, we do the first thing, we make sure there's coordination of, of, of efforts made and uh, there's a situation analysis to, to identify uh, what are the resources available to address the problem. Uh, we, we then promote uh, and work with partners on a number of strategies the, of which one core one is the integration of mental health in any health services, whether it's primary care, secondary care, or uh, um, uh, field hospitals, emergency field hospitals, to have mental health care available at these uh, locations close to the people. Then uh, we, are, we work with partners to, to uh, promote further supports uh, across sectors and in the community to advance community self-help and uh, uh, possibilities for people to mutually support one another because the numbers affected are so large. Uh, the, beyond that, we already begin of, uh, in the midst of emergency, we start thinking of the aftermath of emergencies. As mentioned here, in our in, in our uh, these 9% of the population has a moderate severe uh, mental health condition as measured within the 10 years of the conflict. So that means that uh, also after the conflict, the, the, the country or the affected region needs to have um, mental health services. Now, uh, the best moment to start thinking of these mental health services actually in the beginning of the, in the middle of the crisis to when the interest in mental health is at its highest and when initial steps can be taken to make these long-term uh, changes to the mental health system. And these kind of uh, efforts have been made in a, in a number of countries over the years, showing that uh, emergencies, uh, despite uh, being extremely tragic and extremely uh, adverse to people's mental health, that they can actually be an opportunity for building mental health services in countries. It's a super important paper. You know, there's so many aspects of uh, of conflict to consider. And it feels like this is a relatively underreported one, so we're delighted to have it in The Lancet. And you can read it online now at thelancet.com. Uh, Fiona Charlson, Mark Van Overen, thank you so much for joining me today. You're very welcome, and thank you to The Lancet. Thank you.